Hello, and welcome to the History of Greece, Episode 1, Proem. Since the turn of the 21st century, the silver screen has been awash with cinematic depictions of exciting moments from ancient Greek history. Troy, a movie perhaps best known for revealing Brad Pitt's classically sculpted posterior, retold the Trojan War based on the ancient Greek epic, the Iliad. A few years later, the film 300 bellowed, This is Sparta! into the ears of moviegoers everywhere. This muscle-drenched Hellenic hit, capriciously adapted from a comic book rendition of Herodotus's narration of the Battle of Thermopylae, even inspired a media-fueled exercise and diet trend, as well as a rich variety of mockable moments and internet memes. 300 was so incredibly popular that it inevitably gave rise to a sequel, 300 Rise of an Empire. This second movie recounts the bellicose tales of two famous Persian War sea battles, the Battle of Artemisium and the Battle of Salamis. In the world of literature, author Mary Renault has made a career out of turning the captivating characters and exciting, often blood-soaked, moments of the ancient Greek world into historical fiction. In her 2001 novel, The Last of the Wine, she dramatizes the thrill-a-minute life of Lysias, the weapons manufacturer turned democratic revolutionary turned orator. The thrilling, violent, and salacious moments in Greek history excite our imaginations in a way that allows their continual resurgence in popular culture. And yet, the question remains, aside from its clear entertainment value, is Greek history still relevant? I think so. And in this short introductory episode of the podcast, I hope to persuade you that Greek history is worth pursuing. Thus, in the time-honored tradition of the Greek historians, like Herodotus and Thucydides, I thought I would begin this podcast with a proem, a prologue that provides a little insight into my reasons behind creating a podcast about the history of Greece. Since you found your way here, you probably already have an interest in Hellenic history, perhaps even beyond all the half-naked sword-swinging archetypes depicted in films and books. But it's important to investigate the core reasons that encourage us to continue the study of Greek history today. Military strategists perennially examine Thucydides' retelling of the Peloponnesian War and various ancient accounts of the campaigns of Alexander the Great. These texts provide insight into human nature in times of war and the charismatic influence exerted by great leaders. While these wars occupied mere slivers of time, their influence extends unabated into the current era. But historians, of course, are not the only writers that have influenced the Western intellectual tradition in a lasting way. Alfred North Whitehead famously claimed that all of Western philosophy is no more than a series of footnotes to Plato. For example, in Epistemology, the Philosophical Study of Knowledge, the standard definition of knowledge still comes directly from Plato's dialogues. To this day, philosophy majors in universities are required to take ancient philosophy as part of their degree requirement which I hope means I'll be able to get a job someday when I get out of grad school. Not all of the philosophy influenced by ancient Greek texts is so abstract. Classical philosophy and history served as a backbone for political theory. For example, the French Revolution was fueled by the work of Rousseau. Moreover, Rousseau's work, as well as that of Locke and Hobbes, provided a foundation for the Constitution of the United States. All of these political philosophers, in turn, utilized the texts of Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, and Aristotle as their foundation. While modern political philosophers used these ancient sources to help design the political systems we know today, it's important to realize that our contemporary democracies and republics 
are radically different from the democracy of, say, classical Athens. However, according to some contemporary political scientists, the overlapping traits between today's democracies and those of the classical world can provide us with a surprising amount of economic and political correspondences. In his recent book, The Rise and Fall of Classical Greece, Professor Josiah Ober of Stanford University contends that classical Greece, the time period from approximately 479 to 323 BCE, is one of the few eras comparable to our current political situation because it's one of the few periods and places in history where democracy, or at least citizen-led government, was the norm. As in our own time, this period in which there was a political proclivity to democracy corresponded with a time of economic efflorescence. He asserts that, quote, a comparative analysis of these and other historical cases of political and economic exceptionalism would go a long way toward answering important questions about the origin and sustainability of our modern condition. According to Ober, there is no better historical era than classical Greece to analyze in order to wrap one's head around the interrelated concepts of politics, democracy, and wealth. Of course, texts and data are not the only influential remnants of the ancient Greeks. Tourists, art enthusiasts, art historians, archaeologists, and classicists still flock to the Athenian Acropolis to marvel at its architectural splendor. The Greek government has sanctioned a significant reconstruction of the famous monuments so that the Acropolis may endure for many generations to come. Meanwhile, a heated debate rages over the Elgin marbles. These marble relief sculptures were stripped from the Parthenon by Lord Elgin in the early 19th century. Politicians, historians, curators, and other prominent figures continually issue pronouncements about whether or not the British Museum should return the precious friezes to Greece. Currently, a sign stands in front of the Parthenon on the Acropolis claiming that Elgin's removal of the marbles caused even greater damage than the careless, although accidental, destruction of the Parthenon's roof in 1687, when a Venetian attack ignited the gunpowder that the Ottoman forces were storing inside the famous building. All of the stunning architecture, the relatable writings, and the comparable political-economic conditions that I have mentioned thus far come from the classical period. In fact, while the classical period seems alternately magisterial and familiar, the preceding eras seem both unfamiliar and strange. Some of us are naturally intrigued by how peculiar the ancient Greeks appear, but others are simply put off. For example, the warrior world depicted in Homer couldn't be more dissimilar from our own. Many see the Iliad and the Odyssey as classic, if not the ultimate works of literature. Others find them alienating and impenetrable. And the farther one travels back into Greek history, the weirder things get. The so-called Minoans, a Bronze Age civilization that inhabited Crete and some nearby islands, depicts themselves on their murals in breast-bearing corsets and leaping over bulls, which makes them seem even more bizarre than Homer. But despite the strange characteristics, there are reasons to study the earlier civilizations, as opposed to beginning in 776 BCE, the traditional date of the First Olympiad, which is often used as a starting date for Greek history by textbooks. One of the most compelling arguments for studying the Bronze Age comes from an archaeologist, Professor Eric Klein of George Washington University, who studies this era. He begins his most recent book, 1177 BC, with the following statement, quote, The economy of Greece is in shambles. Internal rebellions have engulfed Libya, Syria, and Egypt with outsiders and foreign warriors fanning the flames. 
Turkey fears it will become involved, as does Israel. Jordan is crowded with refugees. Iran is bellicose and threatening, while Iraq is in turmoil. AD 2013? Yes. But it was also the situation in 1177 BC, more than 3,000 years ago, when the Bronze Age Mediterranean civilizations collapsed one after the other, changing forever the course and future of the Western world. It was a pivotal moment in history, a turning point for the ancient world. End quote. Klein continues by listing a variety of scholars who believe that the similarities between trade networks of the late Bronze Age Mediterranean and modern globalization provide a useful rubric for making assessments about our current international situation. Dr. Carol Bell, an honorary research associate at University College London, argues that tin in the late Bronze Age held a position similar to that of crude oil today. Bronze, which was used to make many of the most valuable items from weapons to jewelry, is made from nine parts copper and one part tin. Bronze is significantly harder and more durable than copper, making it far more desirable. While there were rich copper sources in the Mediterranean itself, according to Klein, quote, at that time, tin was available in quantity only from specific mines in the Badashkan region of Afghanistan and had to be brought overland all the way to sites in Mesopotamia, modern Iraq, and North Syria, from where it was distributed to points farther north, south, or west, including onward across the sea to the Aegean, end quote. Thus tin, like our oil, was universally necessary, but only available in small quantities requiring lengthy travel along very limited supply routes. The collapse of the globalized world in the late Bronze Age, and the interlinked collapse of the tin trade, provide a potentially useful warning to the world about the reliance on crude oil. Even beyond the potential interest in the cautionary tales, or the history of ideas, Greek history is exciting because there are still many mysteries to be solved. Although scholars have been academically studying the Greek world since at least the Renaissance, there are a lot of questions that only today's techniques can answer. For example, only recently has genetic analysis been able to provide insight into one of the greatest questions about where the Minoans came from. Sir Arthur Evans, the first excavator of Minoan civilization, believed that the Minoans came from North Africa, and scholars have debated the origins of this mysterious civilization since they came into public view in the early 20th century. Now, Professor George Stamatoyanopoulos at the University of Washington has published results of his DNA study, revealing that Minoans probably descended from the Neolithic farmers that arrived on Crete a few thousand years before, rather than being a group of invaders from elsewhere. His analysis will probably play a prominent role in the ongoing debate over the Minoan language, preserved in a syllabic script known as Linear A. Linear A has never been deciphered, and the phonetic transcriptions from the syllabary, which can be made via a comparison to the now-deciphered Linear B, do not render a language that looks Indo-European by most people's estimation. Perhaps tracing the origins of the Neolithic farmers may provide a window into the possible languages that the Minoans might have spoken. Despite the allure of the Bronze Age as a parable for the modern world and as a font of enigmas that archaeologists, scientists, and linguists are still trying to solve, this podcast will begin even earlier, in the Stone Age, with the earliest inhabitants of Greece. We will commence with this point in time, because most histories of Greece begin with the hostility of the Greek environment. I believe it is important to understand Greek habitation from its beginnings in order to trace how Greece became the birthplace of many of our Western ideals of civilization. So in episode two, I will begin not with mainland Greece, but with recently documented evidence of settlement on the island of Crete, which provides evidence of habitation 
of the Paleolithic and Mesolithic eras, as well as the earliest concrete evidence of Mediterranean sea travel. These sites on Crete, along with some comparable sites in Indonesia, have recently provided paleoanthropologists with conclusive evidence of sea travel in the Paleolithic. So join me next time on the History of Greece to hear about some exciting new discoveries on Crete, which date back over 100,000 years.